Hello, and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. The last phase of COVID-19 vaccine adoption is going to be a little rocky. It's spring, so I'm going to use a gardening analogy to describe where we're at here. The weather's getting warmer, the days are getting longer, and you're ready for summer nights and picnics and maybe ready for getting that garden going. So you go outside to plant a new tree. You get out your shovel to dig a hole. You put the spade in the ground and it cuts through the soil, still damp from the rain, just like butter. You bale the soil away, raise the shovel again, and scoop it into the shallow crater with basically the same result. A little more resistance this time, but it still makes that satisfying shush sound, albeit with a couple pebble crackles. Then you spear your shovel for the next scoop and clang. It's a rock. That's kind of where we're at right now with the adoption of the COVID-19 vaccine in the United States. It's been butter in the first phase. In fact, distribution is ahead of where President Biden said it would be when he took office, which is great. As I record this, more than half of adults in the U.S. have received at least one COVID-19 shot, which means that we should be at more than half of the adult population vaccinated in the coming weeks. Again, it's great news. On the other hand, polling shows it's going to be a lot more difficult to convince the adults that remain unvaccinated. And we haven't started yet on kids under 16, but that will likely begin in the coming months. And polling shows that only about half of parents say they'll give their kid the COVID-19 vaccine when they're eligible. Our guest today is one of the nation's leading experts on vaccine hesitancy who can help us figure out how we excavate these rocks and plant this tree. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Reich, and she is a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, whose research examines how individuals and families weigh information and strategize their interactions with the state and service providers in the context of public policy, particularly as they relate to healthcare and welfare. She is author of two books, including the award-winning Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. Her work has been featured in outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, Newsweek, the Netflix show, Bill Nye Saves the World, and now here on Wooden Teeth. Here we go with Dr. Jennifer Reich. All right, Dr. Reich, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So I've noticed a certain pattern of behavior on Facebook and in some other places where I've seen people push back against either new public health restrictions or vaccines. And the pattern of behavior revolves around this struggle with processing new information you know, a, a recommendation will change, an estimate will change, and people will kind of act out in a way uh, of exasperation. And I kind of get it on one hand, like I think we're all exasperated at this point um, in this saga that we're all in. Um, but my question for you is, is my perceived problem of people processing new information just a proxy for other objections they might have, or is 
the problem of processing new information a problem in and of itself for some people? You know, as a starting point, I think it's really helpful to just stop for a second and remember that we have been dealing with what feels like COVID forever, but it's been about a year. And it was a virus that we had never seen before, we had never heard of before um, in a pandemic situation we, most of us haven't experienced in our lifetime. And I just think that's important to keep in perspective because I think time moves in really different ways right now. Um, and that both for those of us who were socially distanced for a lot of this year, it's been hard to keep track of months and weeks, especially if our kids didn't get to go to school. There's lots of ways that time doesn't feel linear. Um, and similarly, like I've been thinking about this recently about the vaccines um, against uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that has caused the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to remember that these vaccines have only been authorized for use, uh, two of them in December and one in February. And, you know, so we're talking about weeks and months, not even years. And so when we think about that, it's really helpful, I think, just to kind of add some perspective that we have all been asked to absorb a huge amount of information about something we haven't encountered before. And when, when I think people have been given straightforward information that feels um, not just that it's scientifically true, but that it's communicated in ways that are accessible and that people can really figure out how to integrate it into their lives. We mostly all do. The challenge is that for the, the first part of the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of information. Um, and it still today surprises me a year in that, you know, in my circle of researchers, there's still some arguments about what airborne means between droplets and aerosols and the size of droplets and how contagious it is. And those are, those are the kinds of information I think we all want to know so that we can make informed decisions about how to adapt it in our life. And the other part that's always really hard to keep in mind is that science is always changing. And that even if we don't know everything, it doesn't mean we don't know anything, but that part of learning through a new pandemic is that information is going to keep shifting as more and more information becomes available. And usually those lessons are really hard won. You know that that's a painful process sometimes and it often results from death and um, tragedy. And we see this even with thinking about declining rates of hospitalizations leading to death um, so that people don't die at the same rate they did early in the pandemic that people aren't usually put on ventilators in the same way they were early in the pandemic and that new treatments have been shown to be more effective or less effective. And the, all of that knowledge has come through heartbreak. It's come through loss. It's come through um, trial and error and, and people paying attention and looking for patterns. And so in thinking about what does that mean? Are we just all refusing to integrate new information? I think that to be more sympathetic or empathetic to where I think all of us are with this, we are trying to grapple with changing information, information that, you know, one day sounds like this is scientifically definitely the true. And then it's like, well, now we've learned something new and we all have to, you know, and we're all being asked to change our behaviors accordingly. That's a hard process, particularly when so many other parts of our lives are upended. But doesn't it seem harder for some people versus others? I mean, it seems to me, at least anecdotally, that some people, you know, get these recommendations or or, or mandates, in, in some cases, um, or a, a changing of assessments, and they say, "Well, yeah, I mean, it it sucks, but that's what the science says, and this is what I'm going to do." Um, versus those people who say something like, "God, one day they say one thing, then they say the next. They don't really know what they're talking about. Therefore, I'm not going to do it." 
um, it seems like two different ways to react to the same new information. And I don't know if uh, I don't know if that's just um, you know a- anecdotal and, and irrelevant or a stand-in for some other you know preconceived belief. But it's, it, there does seem to be a split between people's willingness to accept the, the new information versus those who don't. There's definitely a variety of ways people absorb expert information and advice and use it in different ways. You know, I spent about a decade studying why parents opt out of vaccines for their children. And some of what I learned in that research was the ways that parents often feel better equipped to weigh information and therefore trust their own judgment more than they trust experts because they know their lifestyle, they know their family, they know their health, they know their children, and that um, people at the CDC don't, maybe their pediatrician doesn't really know their family very well. And that that sense of personal relevance is really important. And in thinking about how that's mattered through COVID, I think there's some similarities. So we can think about you know, an expert recommendation comes through. And first, I think for many people, it's easy to say, oh, I trust, you know, follow the science. I trust experts. Um, I trust the information coming out. I know it's changing and I can pivot. I can do this. I can make changes. And for others, it can feel really destabilizing or it can, the advice can feel irrelevant to your own experience. So I think, you know, to give you some real world examples of this that I've been thinking a lot about for much of the last year, We have all been hearing information about people who are older are at the greatest risk of death of COVID. Um, And that that shows up in the data and it's true. And so what we saw when the first vaccines against COVID were authorized in December was that a lot of people who are over 65 were really excited to get it because it would, you know, it it managed their risk and their elevated risk of death. It made it possible maybe to see their children or grandchildren again. It made going to the grocery store less terrifying. There was a range of ways that it was important. Um, and now what we're, you know, I think in this next phase where I think as of this week, every American over 16 is eligible for the vaccine around the country is, uh, will young people, for example, feel it's relevant to them? You know, after a whole year of hearing how this disease is most serious for people who are older and you're younger, you're healthier, um, you know, people who have been infected, who recovered what seems to be pretty easily, you know, do you really believe the scientists who say this is really important? knowing that there's still uncertainty, knowing that a lot of the information is going to change. And so I try to always understand where people are coming from in making their own decisions. Because at the end, I think all of us are weighing risk and benefit in our daily lives. We do so inaccurately and in ways that are not justified by statistical models, but feel authentically true because they align with our values. They align with our beliefs. They align with the way we view ourselves. And so um, so those have become really powerful ways of deciding whether you're going to text at a stoplight, even though it's against the law, or whether you're going to eat ice cream after work, or whether you're going to go to the gym this weekend, right? Like all of us are doing these kinds of calculations around our health and that we could discuss on a different day, you know, whether those are good or bad ways of making health decisions. But I respect that people really want to feel that their decisions are personal and individual and that they want to feel empowered to make them. And if that's our starting point, then I think we have to think about how expert advice fits into that. Yeah, I was really fascinated uh, by this part of your work. And I was wondering about the applicability of the research you mentioned to our current situation. And just to clue people in, in case they really want to nerd out, you can read 
Dr. Reich's paper, uh, Vaccine Refusal and Pharmaceutical Acquiescence, Parental Control and Ambivalence in Managing Children's Health, you probably are not going to do that. So I'm going to try to make sense of it to make sure I understand in the first place. So, for example, in that paper, you say that you show how parents manage ambivalence, which allows them to accept medication for their children as a tool to, to be deployed as deemed necessary in particular contexts, while at the same time communicating their rejection of it. So trying to graph this on to um, the COVID-19 vaccine um, is effectively saying, finding a way for people to say, I'm gonna get the vaccine, even though I have these reservations and objections because of X reason. And I think you were just saying that before you could, uh, that X reason could have been because I care about grandma. Um, and now as those people, um, the older folks are, are, have been vaccinated, the question is um, what reason um, can be that X uh, as the counterbalance to, to their objection? Are young, are, are young people gonna be enough? Yeah, and thank you for reading that uh, super nerdy article. Um, you know, when I um, I wrote a book called Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines in about 2016. And one of the things that was left in my data that was still bothering me were the number of parents I spoke with who rejected vaccines for their kids, but then still sought out other pharmaceutical products. And that seemed somehow counterintuitive that they would have this critique of, of pharmaceutical products or pharmaceutical companies, that they would have the sense that they could manage their children's health um, naturally or through organic food or through breastfeeding or through hard parenting uh, work and then still sought out medications. And so it was really that juxtaposition that made me write that paper um, and thinking through sort of this interesting question about what does it mean to say that, you know, you have a philosophical objection to vaccines because you don't trust the relationship between government and pharmaceutical companies, for example, and then seek out pharmaceutical products, right? Like, how do we make sense of the things that look counterintuitive or contradictory? And that's a really interesting question because I think we all do it. We all do things that are counterintuitive and um you know, and under under duress, I'll sometimes admit myself that I do a lot of things that I know aren't evidence based that just make me feel better. Um, you know, I I sometimes take vitamin C when I'm sick. I know the science. I've read all the studies. I know it doesn't have a great profile of improving illness, but I really do think I feel better, and that's important, right? Or thinking about um, you know what are the rituals we do around our health, and they may not stand up to large studies, but they still feel good for us. Like, what does that mean to do this in your daily life? What's really interesting in thinking about parents and how they make vaccine decisions and what that has to do with our situation now today is there's some points of similarity and some points of difference. So, you know, what I find in my work is that parents, it's well, so the low hanging fruit you'll hear is like parents who reject vaccines are ignorant, they're anti-science, they're selfish, they're delusional, but this very way of dismissing what they're saying, they're misinformed, uh, they've bought into conspiracy theories, whatever. But what I actually find in my research and talking to parents and talking to researchers and talking to attorneys in the vaccine injury compensation program is that there's something really quite logical about vaccine refusal in the ways that it emerges from the culture we've put in place. So we've really designed at this moment, and I'd say in the last, maybe the last two decades or so, a cultural landscape that tells people that you are personally responsible for your health. And that if you work hard, if you count your calories, you count your steps, you eat a rainbow a day, you know, you download the right apps, you participate in preventative healthcare, whatever it is, you know, you won't get sick. And 
we can see this really clearly because when we hear that somebody gets sick, we almost always wonder what they did wrong that led to their illness. Like, oh my gosh, they have cancer. Were they a smoker? Did they exercise regularly? Like, what did they do? As if disease is personally manageable. And the problem with that is that it's just scientifically untrue. Most of disease is genetic or environmental or bad luck. um, And most of it is not personally manageable. And yet that's the story we tell. So if you believe that you can control health and illness through hard work, and then we do something really similar with parenting where we tell parents if they work hard, they choose the right school, they choose the right tutoring programs, they um, in, you know, read to their children, they invest in their diet, they manage their snacks. You know, If they can do all the right things, their kids will be successful. And what I heard was that parents were working really hard to do what they thought were best was best for their children. And they were really drawing on both of these kinds of logics, that hard work in parenting and hard work on healthcare will predict good outcomes because that's the story we tell every day in every magazine, on the health reports, on your websites, you know, you get that message all the time. And so I take that, you know, and I live in the same culture. I have children. I understand how hard it is to feel like you're doing a good job for your family. So I started thinking about during the COVID era, how this was going to be similar and different. And what's different is that we really don't have the same conversations about adult vaccines that we do about childhood vaccines because we accept that children are more vulnerable and also they're legally required for school attendance in a way that we don't have mandates for adult vaccines. So adults outside of like healthcare, the military and some universities are really not required to take vaccines. It's just recommended for personal benefit. And we don't talk about herd immunity for adults in the way that we do for children and childhood diseases. COVID's really pushing us on this conversation. So we're having to have really different conversations than we typically have about things like flu vaccines or shingles vaccines or tetanus vaccines. Like we don't talk about adult vaccines as a community benefit or as a social responsibility in the same way. So here we are in a pandemic having to have really different kinds of conversations about adults And it's brushing up against that individual sense of control and management where people feel like they're best able to control illness, to manage health, to decide what risks they want to take. And for the most part, we accept that adults should be empowered to make decisions, even if they're really bad decisions and live with the consequences, which is why adults can't be forced to undergo blood transfusions. It's why adults can't be forced to undergo medical treatments. Like we accept for the most part that if you are capable of making a decision, get to, even if it's actually not a very good one. And the problem now is we're in a pandemic where we don't live with our individual decisions. We are all tied together in a way that we're really unfamiliar with. And that's going to make us have to have very different kinds of conversations about what we owe other people around us. And we have no practice with that as adults. So do you think that the institution of vaccine passports in certain instances to travel internationally or engage in certain activities, do you think that's going to be a net positive or a net negative from the standpoint of getting more people to take the vaccine? Yeah. So um, if it's okay, just to spend a second, you know, clarifying what we mean, because there are no passports. And what's complicated is that the federal government is very clear that they will not be taking a leadership role in this. So uh, the question then becomes, can the private sector decide, I should say private sector and and some kinds of public sector, but that's a little bit more mushy. Um, You know, can they decide that they are only going to provide services or employment or benefits to people who can demonstrate vaccination? And 
I will say that uh, this makes me nervous in that um, we don't have any examples of the private sector doing better than the public sector when it comes to things like civil liberties, when it comes to health privacy, when it comes to protecting people with disabilities or not discriminating against women or people for pregnancy. Um, we don't have examples of the private sector being good at protecting uh, civil liberties in the way that the public sector is expected to. And that makes me really nervous. So a few weeks ago, I got my first invitation to a bar opening for people who could demonstrate vaccination. Um, I woke up this morning to my college age child texting me to let me know that his university announced today that vaccines will be required if you want to attend school in the fall. Um, so we're starting to see individual private sector organizations try to make decisions. And if we want to be really sympathetic, we can see the ways that those organizations and companies want to protect their employees, they want to protect their clients, they want to be part of a solution and they don't want their business to increase risk. And I respect that it's horrifying to imagine that your business led to the death of people, you know, and I think that was really challenging for a lot of companies early on. I mean, grocery store workers had something like a 20% infection rate uh, during the pandemic. And to know that those workers got very, very sick and some died is heartbreaking for those companies and for those individuals and for the people. So the idea that showing a vaccine record will somehow allow everybody to participate in the economy again in ways that feel less risky is interesting. The challenge, of course, is always in the implementation. <laughs> so it's always in the weeds. Um, so we can say writ large, it's a great idea that you can only come to a concert or sporting event if you're vaccinated because then when people are singing or yelling or cheering, everyone there is safe. That makes intuitive sense. But then when we get into the weeds of implementation, what does it mean on the ground for that to happen? So does it mean that everybody brings their white cardboard piece of paper that they were handed by a volunteer or a clinical clinic staff member um, that they got when they got their vaccine that never, that didn't have any personalized information, is not certified, right? Their mask, like, what does that mean? Is that really an ID? Um, what does it mean to know um, who is taking that information and what do they need to know about you as a person to accept that information? So one could imagine, um, you know, a pregnant woman who really wants to attend um, a restaurant opening and who's decided that until there's better data on pregnancy and vaccine, she wants to wait. Um, who does she tell that to? Or is she just excluded from private, from, you know, from civil society? What about people who are undergoing chemotherapy um, who really can't be vaccinated safely right now? What does it mean to have this kind of landscape? And then, you know, who do we want deciding and how should that happen? And that's the space where I don't necessarily believe corporations are the best able to do this well. I wanted to return uh, to the issue of adult vaccines versus vaccines for children, because right now, as you mentioned, um, people 16 and up can receive the vaccine. There's already a, an emergency application um, to administer at least one of the vaccines to um, younger folks. And I think that in the coming months, it's pretty likely that um, children uh, down to some age to be determined are going to be um, eligible for the vaccine. How do you think this is gonna play out 
um, at a population level? Are we going to have people who are willing, uh, adults who are willing to take the vaccine, who are then unwilling to have their kids take it? Uh, and vice versa, could there be people who are unwilling as adults to, to get it, but they maybe for some reason want to protect their kids, um, have their kids take it instead? How I feel like this might be you know, a, a different context than um, say the MMR vaccine, or maybe I'm wrong, you're the, you're the expert. Please predict the future. How's this going to go? No, I spent a lot of time thinking about this issue um, because, it, you know, on one hand, if you, there, so we have sort of these competing definitions of what vaccines are um, that I find, you know, interesting enough to spend over a decade thinking about them. So one thing that's really worth noting is that vaccines are a technology of risk management or containment, and they're given to healthy people. And that's different than every other pharmaceutical product, which is used to treat illness. So it's a really different kind of calculation on what your risk and benefit thresholds are on these. So, you know, what I heard from parents often when they rejected vaccines for their kids is that they often weighed, for example, the severity of the disease against their fear of what was unknown about the safety of the vaccine. And they also considered the probability their child would encounter a virus uh, against their concerns about a vaccine. And I'll say that they um, often overestimated the risk of vaccine and underestimated the risk of infection, but they were doing so in a fairly informed way. So I'll give you an example. You know, I talked to parents who said, polio hasn't been in the United States since about 1979. So do we really need every baby to get a polio vaccine? And is it really a problem if I want to wait or if they want to wait till they're an adult and decide for themselves? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, I talk to researchers who say we have an active polio in this country. If vaccine rates ever dropped, we would see a resurgence of polio. Um, but from a parent's perspective, it just if we're not traveling, they felt like that seemed like a pretty safe decision to delay a polio vaccine. I talked to parents who said that they just didn't want their kids to get a chickenpox vaccine because they didn't believe chickenpox is a very serious disease for children. And most parents today remember having chickenpox. They're the last generation who will, but they remember having chickenpox as a kind of rite of passage that was miserable but short-lived, and they don't they didn't know anybody who'd been hospitalized or died from it because, in fact, it's pretty small numbers, and mostly adults were the ones most affected. So in thinking about, you know, how do you weigh this kind of, is the vaccine uh, worth it? I think the COVID vaccines are going to be in a really interesting zone because for the most part, children, young children have very few symptoms of infection and they actually are not the most efficient spreaders of the disease either. That's not as true for middle school and high school kids. Those uh, teens start to look pretty much like adults for their ability to spread disease, but it's lower in younger kids. Having said that, um, there's some other things we don't know yet, like the rates of things like um, multi-system inflammation syndrome, which is showing up after infection and kids get very, very sick, though seldom do they die, but they're treated usually in the hospital. Um, we don't know the long-term repercussions of infection. So does this have any long-term outcomes for your, say, cardiac health or your vascular health? Like those will change those calculations. But with the information most people have right now, parents could say, uh, okay, so that's a virus that doesn't really affect kids seriously. And there seems to be an emerging consensus that we're all going to need boosters sometime in the next few years, um, whether it's against new variants or whether it's because uh, your immune system doesn't remember very well when it comes to these kinds of viruses. So if you're going to need boosters anyway, do I really want to start when my child is six or eight or 10? Or do I want to wait 
And that feels safer to me while there's still some things that are not fully known. And I'm not, I'm not dismissive that having some skepticism is not entirely irrational and wanting to ask good questions is important. The challenge, of course, is that um, my kids went back to in-person school a couple months ago. And I semi-regularly get emails from the school just letting me know someone has tested positive for COVID in the school. They've notified everyone on the seating chart. They're asking those who have been in the same classroom to stay home for 10 days. And this happens uh, every few weeks. And that makes it, that's, it impacts people's learning. It impacts parents' ability to work for wages. It impacts a lot of things, not to mention the possible risk of infecting those around them. So this is going to be the attention, I think, um, should Pfizer's application for um, authorization for younger children be, be granted. Um, and even moving forward, if the vaccines are um, fully licensed and this becomes more standard, I think this is the space that parents are really going to be grappling with the, how do we understand the benefits of participation in this vaccine? And how do we understand the risks? And the challenge is that they're very new vaccines. And so while the data look to be exquisitely safe and we have excellent monitoring of safety after authorization that is ongoing, um, people still feel nervous. And it's worth remembering that most of the vaccines we have now, we've had for 30, 40, 50 years. So those, uh, what we didn't know about safety was worked out long before most of us were around. And that's really different. We're right now in a new world. And we saw that last week with the pause around the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that we're still learning as we go. And that doesn't mean the risks outweigh the benefits, but it does mean that people have questions. And I think that's okay. The pandemic we're experiencing now is on a level that we haven't seen in a century since 1918. Uh, however, scientists predict that because of climate change and globalization, that it's possible that we're going to see more pandemics at a more frequent rate uh, going forward. My question for you is, if we have another pandemic with this threat potential within the next decade, do you think that the experience that we've all gone through in this last year makes it more likely or less likely that people will comply with mandates and guidelines that are issued? Yeah, I've seen the same science and I really hate it. Like I hate the idea that this will become a new normal. And part of what I mean by a new normal is that there will become potentially a kind of desensitization to the death toll and the, the sickness burden that will affect us. Of the things that we did well during COVID, and I think it's sometimes hard to remember that there were things that went well. Right now we have a moment where the federal government has paid for vaccines for everyone in the country who wants one. And that you can go to anywhere you can find an appointment, whether it's your health provider or not, and you can access it. And I keep imagining like, what would it look like if that were true all the time? Like you could go for a flu vaccine whenever you want to anywhere and it was free. What would it look like to have, you know, easy access that was convenient that you could drive through and get healthcare when you needed something quick? Like that's amazing to picture. Um, and that it would be affordable that, you know, during the care, the CARES Act provided funds to help pay for people's hospital bills so that um, they weren't decimated by the effects of, the, of COVID hospitalizations. And, you know, Prior to the Affordable Care Act, the leading cause of bankruptcies was medical bills. And so the idea like we could take those parts of this and roll them forward and we would all be better for it. 
My fear though, is that we'll forget the parts we did well. And when it comes to things like we'll need a booster in a few years, or we'll need a new vaccine for a new virus, will there still be the same political will to make sure it's accessible to everyone who wants one without insurance, without billing, without hassle? Um, you know, moving forward, will we make sure that we are taking care of the people who are most vulnerable among us? You know, we've had some really good conversations around equity because of COVID. And what would it look like if we roll those forward into thinking about healthcare more generally? That would be great. Um, and so there's some possibilities that we could come through this better able to respond, better able to meet people's needs and meet them where they are. The challenge, of course, is that we could also see something where this becomes the way we've seen school shootings, like another tragedy that doesn't, you know, rise to the level of a policy solution. You know, when we think about the very first school shootings, thinking about Columbine when we first heard about it, it was unimaginable. And what have we seen this month? You know, I, I've lost count of how many um, how many mass shooting events we've seen in the last month. So that's a kind of example of like, we could go either way on this. And I think there's a lot of promise. What I worry about is the way we become desensitized and then we accept certain things that didn't used to be acceptable. Um, as just inevitable when they're really not. So how does a sociologist come to care so much about vaccines? How did you come to this work? You know, I usually joke that uh, the fastest way to bring down the mood in a room is to invite a sociologist because uh, we tend to be all doom and gloom. Um, my story actually was less about vaccines and I'm really interested in the intersections between the family law and health and everywhere those come together. So my early work was on the child protective services system and looking at when can the state take your children away and how do you get them back? That was my first book. Um, I like to think about things like access to contraceptive services and how people can achieve their personal goals. And when I was thinking about new places that people make sense of health and policy and expertise in their daily life, I got really interested in thinking about vaccines. And I started thinking about it actually right after 9-11 when the Bush administration was advocating that healthcare providers be vaccinated against smallpox again in case there was a bioterrorist threat. And just to show how things come full circle, the laws that were passed with the Patriot Act around 2004 created the mechanism for an emergency use authorization for an unlicensed pharmaceutical product or vaccine, which, has never, was, which was used once during the anthrax vaccine very briefly and then has brought us today to these COVID vaccines in ways that when I started thinking about this around 2002, 2003, 2004, I couldn't have imagined. But I really started this to think about what does it look like for parents to make daily decisions for their children, to consider who they trust, and um, accepting that people are experts on their own lives and that I think most parents are doing the best with what they have, where they are. And if we start from that premise, instead of telling people they're ignorant or stupid, where does that take us? Uh, and the places that we can find where there's disagreement, whether it's the child protective services system, which everyone agrees is a failure, no matter what you think is a solution, or vaccines where we can have something that has such disagreement about what it is at its core, uh, the more interesting those spaces are to me to think about. Finally, I just had a, a question for you about being a sociologist right now. Let me see if I can set this up the right way. <laughs> In the age of the internet and social media, different professions have changed profoundly. But thinking about a, a couple of somewhat analogous ones, journalism's changed. Um, you know, beginning with the fact that the way that you know newspapers made money before be, uh, was 
essentially destroyed uh, by the internet. You know, um, the classified listings went away. But I think also part of it was that um, journalism uh, kind of became somewhat democratized, and you know, people could um, put their content out there uh, on platforms that people could see in, in a way that they, they couldn't before. Um, the way politics and how people understand it and talk about politics and the forms in which they can do it have, have changed. Um, everybody had an opinion about politics before the internet, but now people have a place where they can have more of a megaphone. And it's kind of resulted in, um, I would argue, kind of um, having people more involved and more knowledgeable um, about the process and people having uh, their own theories to the point which when politicians campaign, they almost campaign as if they're campaigning to pundits versus campaigning to um, a regular voter. Um, you know, they, they, they communicate in a way that's um, self-aware about how people are processing this information in a, in, in a, in a, in a different context than just kind of a, a meat and potatoes, kitchen tables sort of, uh, issues sort of way, if that makes sense. So my question for you is, is being a sociologist different now than it was before um, the internet and social media? Because in a way, um, everybody's kind of a, a, an armchair sociologist with their own platform and, and, and megaphone. And does that affect the way that you um, come at your work or share it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I'd say that... Um, I mean, I, so I'll say a couple of things. One is that I think it's easy to become nostalgic for like a world before we democratized knowledge, before we democratized information, before everyone could have a following if, if they had a good TikTok, right? That like back in the day, there were experts, you know, there's an easy, it's easy to romanticize this moment. It's also worth remembering that that same kind of democratization has had some really important outcomes. So when we think about even in the 1970s, the ability for people to push back about their own health care, you know, transformed women's health care, for example, and the women's health movement was essential to that. You know, we could think about through the 1980s, like thinking about, you know, AIDS activists who were demanding transparency and accountability in clinical trials for HIV medications, transformed how the FDA works, and it brought a new place for citizen science and bringing people into the process. Um, I'd say like even recently, thinking about how we newly are talking about racial disparities in health and um, how badly um, black people in general and you know, brown and black people across lots of different ethnic groups are having terrible experiences in healthcare systems today, not just hundred years ago, but in not being listened to, not having symptoms taken seriously, having worse healthcare outcomes. You know, that these conversations uh, that have been facilitated through that democratization of knowledge are really important and they have important places. Um, the place where, um, like, so the part of my job that's really boring is that nobody wants to do is the part that's the systematic data collection to create infant knowledge, um, which is slow and meticulous and takes a really long time to come up with patterns. And, um, uh, you know, I've been joking that, you know, I started thinking about vaccines. I started in 2002 or three. I started interviewing parents in 2007. My book came out in 2016. And um, I'm still talking about vaccines in a way that people uh, are surprised that vaccines are interesting to talk about all of a sudden, right? And that it's a slow process to get to do this. Um, 
what I would love is that if people understood sociology as a kind of um, method for thinking about patterns in the world that are more than just personal opinions, then that would be a great way that I could uh, I could proselytize. I could get my signing bonus for new grad students in sociology. I'm kidding. There's no signing bonuses in sociology. But I could think about right bringing people into the idea that knowledge has to be systematic. It has to be data-driven. We have to look for patterns that are more than your personal experience. If we could get a better vocabulary for that, I think that's really good. But what I will say about the world of public health, which I'm a little bit adjacent to, but um, deeply involved in, is that, you know, if we're going to be optimistic or, you know, that uh, there's been a lot of concepts that public health people have been trying to get through for years about herd immunity, about infection risk, um, and Everyone, everyone has, uh, I think everyone's gotten it during this era and it's changed the conversation, right? That people have a very different understanding of transmission and of risk and of um, community responsibilities. And that has a great possibility for how we can move that forward. I think there's a lot of promise in those conversations. Dr. Reich, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for making time for this podcast. And if you like it, please subscribe to it and tell your friends you'd be doing us a really big solid. Take care and I'll catch you next time.